0: So, what
1: are we talking about tonight? Well, so Devry and I had a conversation like a couple weeks ago about um, depression, and just how much life sucks ass. But uh, it just we, it got more productive, and we we started to kind of talk about like different philosophical perspectives. And essentially, I thought like it, it was a kind of a nice add on to our discussion about the rut, Joel, like the, the talk about how, like, you know, we felt that we're in different phases of a rut. And, um, I don't know. I just thought maybe it would be interesting to kind of pursue some of the, the, I don't know, the darker, like the underbelly of that a little bit. The underbelly of what contributes to the rut? Like the underbelly of where it leaves you a little bit.
2: Yeah. I guess like where it leaves you, like in a philosophical, existential standing, like where, what do you believe in or what do you think most applies to you?
0: Okay. So a sense of like, if you get out of the rut, what will get you there and what will be fulfilled in you if you do? And if you're in the rut, what does it exactly feel like you're missing? Like, have you lost a sense of purpose that that sort of thing? Or
1: it's ambiguous. I mean, some of it is I think the fact that you know we're we're sort of constantly learning is like especially going through any kind of a hardship you're constantly learning you're growing you're evolving whatever like even if it's against your will like you are changing as a person and the discussion we had was about like well what if that starts to feel like a stripping away rather than you know wisdoms being bestowed on you what if it feels like your hopes and your dreams and your faiths and your joys are being trimmed <laughs> where does that leave you, you know? And especially when that feels rationally correct or that feels like, well, this is a learned experience or this is a learned perspective. Like, this isn't just I'm pissed off, I'm depressed and whatever. This is, I'm arriving at this point for legitimate reasons. Mm -hmm. So what the hell does that mean and where does that leave you? So we had a good discussion about, um, I think it started with like nihilism versus fatalism versus misanthropy versus existentialism. So by underbelly, I mean like the flip side of what you and I talked about, Joel, where that was like, the practical effects that these things can have on your life. Like what are they, your social world or your professional world or your kind of get up and go that type of stuff. This is more like the, the broad ambiguous, like reason to live <laughs> reason to relate <laughs> type stuff.
2: Um, gotcha. I think also too, it's like coming to terms with the darker sides of existentialism or philosophy and how those don't necessarily have to be dark.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. That's what makes it worth discussing to me is it's optimistic.
2: Yeah. It started with me saying that I think I might be a nihilist now, but I think I'm really okay with it. (laughs) Yeah. My life has been trying really, really hard not to be considered a nihilist and really trying to believe in, well, is going to sound awful hope trying to believe in hope. Yeah. (laughs) But I, on a broad scale, no longer feel that hope for humanity or the planet But accepting that, I feel almost more optimistic about a one-on-one social level.
0: Okay. (laughs) So you you feel that kind of chiseling down that hope to a smaller goal is what's getting you there?
2: Not quite a goal. Just like for myself, I accept that more likely than not, human beings are pretty doomed. The planet's pretty doomed. Even if we started getting our shit together right now, probably not going to do much. Okay. And that's okay. And so that's part of what makes what's make me think, like, maybe nihilism, maybe not. Like, I don't think that there is a point for me personally to be trying to fix these these problems, because I can't. However, mm. on a personal level, I still believe in human beings not being inherently evil. But on a grand scale, maybe inherently evil.
1: <laughs> well, I remember one thought I had about that. I mean, and I felt this myself and I've heard this from other people as well. When you arrive at a point, where you feel like you're sort of ruling on the the moral state of humanity, like whether human beings are inherently good, inherently evil, are going to recover, are going to lead to the type of life that you want to have the world be able to uh, kind of uphold, like a lot of that's sort of predicated on that promise that you know you're told when you're a little kid, at least in many cases, like you know the world will be what you make it, and just be yourself and all this kind of stuff. and it's that promise is getting chipped away, but humanity hasn't necessarily moved an inch. Or it might have, but regardless, it doesn't necessarily factor in to these philosophies as directly as I think it seems like it should. It's more of like the mismatch between your lived experience and that promise that you were told about. So to me, that's what always acts as a buffer against like pessimism and stuff is it's like it's cheap. It's a route that, you know, it's an easy route away from this painful feeling, but it doesn't necessarily have any logical basis because humans, we're never supposed to be shitty. We're never supposed to be good. Like, we're just all kind of doing our thing. But when you're young, you're told your thing is going to be great. And then it <laughs> ends up not being that great <laughs> in some cases.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things that I just wrote down. Being in the rut does mean in a sense that like, or not always, but it can mean, and I know that for me currently it does mean, that I feel that there's a purpose I'm not serving or a purpose that I determined for myself in the past. It's not something that I feel capable of serving right now, whether that's a matter of resources or energy or an optimism that it will actually have the reach that it once did if I do try to serve that purpose. And that's certainly what I'm feeling right now. Um, I had a professor once argue that evil is implacable, but Mm -hmm. that that does not mean that humans are, are evil. Mm. there is evil that humans can avail themselves of but that doesn't mean that humans are evil and i like that that case
2: yeah i don't think that we are inherently evil i think i misspoke there i think in the grander scale of like all of the other species and this planet we are definitely the enemy like we are the one single-handedly bringing down its destruction oh for sure so if we were to tell this tale by anyone else's story other than humankind 100% (laughs) evil yeah. however, I don't think that humans are inherently evil
1: when it brings in the interesting question of like the moral judgment too like evil is slightly different than I don't know antagonistic I guess like than mm-hmm. like because I think in at least say like humans versus um I don't know like nature the environment like we are antagonistic as hell we are <laughs> the antagonist and there's yeah. nothing that can <laughs> compare to us but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're evil if you define evil via, you know, intentionality. Mm -hmm. With the exception of, you know, a a select few who maybe are deliberately going out with hot plates and melting icebergs and shit. Like, we might be greedy, we might be amoral, but I, I don't necessarily think that en masse humans are evil or even immoral in the way that we would have to be to be evil on that, like that much of a capital E evil, you know? So the moral judgment of good versus evil is entirely different, I think, than, you know, the, destru- the destruction that we can wreak on the world.
0: I think antagonism is born of opposing ideals, whereas evil is born of indifference.
2: And I would say that we are far more of indifference than opposing views.
0: As a species, as a whole?
2: As a whole, or... yeah. The amount that we allow. It's saying strictly for Mother Nature. We are mm-hmm. completely different to her plight and how that we are affecting certain surra- our
1: surroundings. So what about a quick thought experiment? Okay. If we suddenly became completely benevolent and kind and patient with our fellow humans to where you know, we saw the end of all wars, we saw like the end of poverty, the it, we we finally started giving a shit in the kumbaya way that we all hope, but we continued to not give a rats ass about the environment and continued to burn the planet alive. Would we be evil? Can you simultaneously be good in one moral dimension and evil in another? Or is evil kind of a blanket? Because you only ever hear about it like that. You only hear you are good, you are evil. You don't hear like, great philanthropist, but mass murderer. (laughs) Uh,
0: So, wait, in this experiment, all, all humans have evolved to... I'm sorry, can you say it again, actually?
1: Basically, I'm thinking, like, how much does context matter for this ruling of good versus evil... Like, if we suddenly became good in the sense that we, we picked up our fellow human when they were down, we, we eliminated poverty, we stopped declaring war on each other just for the hell of it, all that kind of stuff, but we continued to melt the ice caps, poke holes in the ozone layer. We, we did not care. We were as e- indifferent about the environment as okay. we are now, but we picked each other up. If you were having a conversation about inequality, we would be good, but if you were having a conversation about ice caps, we'd be evil.
2: So I disagree because, and I'm probably about to quote Harry Potter here, Um, I was told, I read, I think it was Harry Potter, that you can tell a whole lot more about a person or a species based on how they treat those who are lower than them, not their equals. So even if on a whole human spectrum, we treat everyone with the respect that they deserve and we're still horrible to animals, to our environment, then no, we're not good. We're still making that choice as a society. It's actually even worse if we're a more enlightened society. But mm-hmm. in our enlightenment, we still can't get our shit together and save this planet.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. Like, stuff like this just interests me sometimes because it really makes me wonder how. Uh, this feels like a, <laughs> like a bad person thing to say, but um, <laughs> it just makes me wonder how useful good and evil are as concepts, mm-hmm. as constructs, as even just ideas. Like, who the hell cares at mm-hmm. a certain point? Like, benevolence or you know malevolence and different things like being good to one another like acts it definitely matters you know like specific acts but these big blanket statements of like are we good are we bad like i don't necessarily think that these things are so mutually exclusive or can happen at all in a lot of cases I think a lot of it's very relative. And it just makes me wonder sometimes... Like, again, kind of back to that promise, like back to that whole idea that, like, at some point in your life you were told... Most people, at least, you know, were in this society, were told, like, this is kind of how the world works. And then as you live, you sort of chip away at that narrative until you, you come to your own role in it. And sometimes I just think about these things, and I'm like, the world isn't necessarily the enemy. The Humanity isn't necessarily even the enemy. It's these ideas were just fucking wrong. I was... It's like the Sartre idea like in um, existentialism and human emotion. Like, yeah. you know, we were born without our consent. We were kind of abandoned at the edge of the forest and just left to figure it out. Like these types of discussions always take me back to that. This is why I've always rejected misanthropy. It's like, it's just cheap and lazy. It's like these types of ideas always bring me back to the, the point that like, well, we just believed the wrong shit. And now it's on us to start making up some new shit that is more useful. And that's where the optimism plugs back in.
0: I feel like I have a lot to say about this. I don't want to gloss over whatever Devry has because this is a conversation that you two had had before. So I'm sure you
2: I mean, we're already so off the rails yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> as far as misanthropy. Because yeah i don't think of myself as a mis-an- misanthropist i have a stutter it's not going to be good that's um, on a interpersonal scale or even on a societal scale but on like a global greater like meaning scale i do think i might be one mm-hmm. where i do believe and i think that's something that you've said to me multiple times matt is there's nothing that our species is better at is more meant to do than destroy the planet <laughs>
0: <laughs> well that's yeah. the thing if if you looked at humans the way that you looked at any other predator or any other species that is like trying to – like if you look at humans like a virus, like the coronavirus escaped its little entrapment and mm-hmm. spread quickly and like populated the entire world. And that's considered success for a virus. You yeah. know? Yeah. It's not considered success for us. But if you look at humans that way, we're thriving and we're doing exactly what we're supposed to do by taking over as many areas as we can and – Boosting our population as much as we possibly can.
2: But yeah, like a virus, once we kill off all of our hosts, we're no longer neither. we're done.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well,
1: Debbie, do you remember any more of the rails that we were on when we were like just before we kind of like zigzag around too too much? Like, is there anything that you remember from that conversation?
2: Um, I never thought of existentialism as a its own philosophy, but as like an all encompassing of all of the other philosophies. And how we hit that is due to, we were talking about fatalism, because I'm saying, thinking maybe I'm not, I don't think that there's no redeeming or redempt, like way of redeeming a person on a singular level. Yeah. But I think that it's far past the point. There is no point of trying to fix things yeah. on a global level because it's yeah. pretty impossible. But for some reason, I find comfort in that and I don't know why.
1: Well, did you want to? I remember we looked up the definitions of all of these because I think the yeah. part of this discussion, we should caveat this with the fact that like each one of these ideas is its own distinct yeah. forest of philosophies. Like it's just, you know, you can become an, a doctor in any one of these tangents and still not scratch the surface. So like without going into, uh, you know, besides like the stuff that we do know off the top, like we, you know, we're not experts in any one of these things, but I do remember we looked up the definitions, just the dictionary definitions of each one, just to kind of see yeah. like where, where does that compass rose orient itself? Having to have a few of them right here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So let's see let's, let's start with misanthropy That's easy It's dislike of humankind
2: mm.
1: And then it, you can expand it to like Kind of a general hatred Dislike, distrust, or contempt Of human species or human nature So You know, it's it's a clear umbrella there Fatalism is uh, You know, a submissive outlook The belief that all things are predetermined And therefore inevitable So basically the subjugation of all events or actions To fate or destiny Mm-hmm Nihilism is the rejection of all religious and moral principles, and the belief that life is meaningless. It can also tie in with extreme skepticism, and this one is one of the more complicated ones to me because I think it really can be conflated with things like just straight up pessimism or misanthropy. But uh, and then existentialism, our old friend, is. <laughs> Uh, philosophical theory or approach which emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent determining their own development through acts of the will.
0: So I think that fatalism often gets misconstrued as everything is doomed rather than everything is predestined. Mm -hmm. And that would be the first thing that I would want to get out of the way. I also think that, well, I fully agree with Peter Rollins, who is a uh, a philosopher, a, a contemporary philosopher. And What he would say is that like nihilism is never the end point. You know, nihilism is always a beginning of a deconstruction and nihilism is where you end up when you find yourself unable to believe in anything else or nothing else seems legitimate or hopeful or purposeful, but then in deconstructing why you feel nihilistic or why you have lost hope or whatever it may be, why you hold nothing in reverence anymore, that's the beginning of reconstructing what you do hold reverence for and reconstructing your analysis of what seems purposeful or seems worth believing in. And this is why existentialism is an important outlook to me because... The idea that life inherently lacks meaning is effectively combated, I think, by the idea that there is inherent meaning to the fact that we make meaning. Like one thing that you could say about humans universally, that would be true, is that most cultures and societies and civilizations of human beings construct their own meaning, whether that meaning is uniform in what throughout the culture or society, or whether they differ in meanings, they all have some outlook. So, existing as a human is inherently the act of placing meaning on that existence. That's my personal point of view.
2: And I don't disagree with it, but I guess my kind of counter to that idea would be that all of this meaning. Could in fact be meaningless. Like we are creating all of this meaning out of pure fear and social contract, because if there wasn't anything, then it would just be pure chaos and anarchy and pandemonium.
0: But then how would that be meaningless? Because we all still exist and have lived experiences. And if we're afraid of something, of chaos, of death, of whatever it may be the meaning that we're making of that is that we have to avoid it or that we have to quell it or that we have to cope with it in some way so even if the meaning of existing is to cope with existing then that is still meaning
2: yeah i mean you could say that the purpose of existing is to exist and that to find meaning is to be meaningful mm-hmm. but at the end of the day as we have no idea what the hell happens after we leave this plane or you know whatever like it whether or not there's a meaning in the greater scale, no one knows. And so if there's someone that doesn't think that, then all of this is still just a candle that's getting extinguished at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, yeah. <laughs> all right, so
1: how about, what? what is the least significant meaning that could still be rendered significant? Because I think it's a very, a lot of times it's very, myself included, everyone's quick to reach into the next world and say like, you know, implicitly like earthly or mortal meanings don't quite mean anything unless there's either a legacy or there's a god or you know there's something that stretches into the unknown so my question would be what is the least meaningful meaning that could exist whether it's something we make up for ourselves during the course of our own existence or something that's kind of handed to us
2: well yeah i kind of agree with joel where like it's that you're giving yourself meaning so like you are having children for something to care about. The, God, don't quote me on that one. And I know that's not the reason why everyone has kids. <laughs> but just say, like, from my completely selfish and not a kids perspective, you yeah. have children because you need meaning. Like, you exist. And then for, therefore, you made something else exist that will make something else exist. And that is your meaning. That is your purpose.
0: Right. Or there's, like, a keeping up with the Joneses aspect to it. Where, like, it
2: better, yeah. you do
0: things because you're told that you should. Or your, or it's modeled for you as the norm, and therefore you do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I would ask real quick that we disambiguate meaning from philosophy or ideology.
1: Okay,
0: I'm asking you. <laughs> uh. <Yeah.
2: laughs>
0: what in the in the context of this question are you? Do you mean meaning as in like defining your purpose or defining your lens?
1: I don't know. I mean, it, it could be any. It, it's. I didn't really have a clear sense of that specifically when i pose the question it's more just like a a counter to the idea that life is meaningless inherently what would life have to be at its most minimal state in order to disprove that notion Mm -hmm. like what would that philosopher be reaching for and i know that there's like thousands of different tracts that try to explain what meaning is and what meaninglessness, meaninglessness is and that you can approach this from a hundred different vantage points but if you were in your philosophical sandbox and you were able to make that world mm-hmm. and you had just base materials to do it, what would that look like?
2: I think it's, it is longevity, whether it's through reproduction or creating something that lasts outside of you. If there isn't a deity in which you get to spend eternal witness with after you pass away, then it is the idea that you live on through your deeds. I don't think that, at least from my perspective and from a human kind perspective, like all we know is that we need to continue on.
0: So posterity, but even that ends, which is, I wasn't going anywhere with that. I just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just always where my mind goes when I think of like legacy or whatever. And sure. It's like everything expires.
2: But it is isn't every like evolutionary step we've taken as a species is just ways to record ourselves longer to prove our existence deeper.
0: For as long as other humans in the future can perceive that legacy. Exactly. But it's the same, you know. Quickly, I'll say that simulation theory would cover (laughs) some of this fatalism stuff, where the people who are not, by virtue of how they have been programmed within a simulation, are just not going to hit their stride or be good people,
2: unless there's free will within the simulation.
0: Fuck. (laughs) 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 Yeah, we can't go down this. We could. could
2: Honestly, if this was a simulation, I would feel comforted because it would mean that we have a species that is currently in existence, that is smart enough to be running this whole simulation. And that will exist after us because I do not believe that we will be surviving much longer. Sure,
0: But if they were the superior species and they were the quote unquote real species, Mm -hmm. would it be any less comforting? Because I don't want to get into this, but I will. (laughs) (laughs) Would it be any less comforting if the reminiscence and legacy of your accomplishments or your deeds in this world weren't remembered the way that you thought they'd be remembered? Like they might be remembered by the people who are observing the simulation, but they won't be remembered by the people who are the inferior species, the species we're a part of because we're the programmed species.
2: So I'm not quite sure the difference or if it matters. We still can't control how it's remembered.
1: And even if that weren't the case, would the um, certainty of knowing there is a higher species or that, you know, essentially like there is some predestination or there is some sort of sense of control that we don't have to have, would we be able to shift gears and, and trade the idea that we need to have legacy for just camaraderie? Like would that be enough? Like maybe we don't inherently need legacy on like a celestial level. Maybe we just need the certainty that legacy brings us, the certainty that we did things right. Ah, If you're doing a good job and the person next to you is also doing a good job and you know that, hey, you know, upper management's controlling everything. It's all good as long as we keep doing this good job. Then who the hell cares if it gets passed on to your grandkids?
0: Who was that Eastern European philosopher, the, the U- history and utopia guy? Oh, uh, Charan. Yeah. Okay. So this is getting into that territory. <laughs> it's a dark territory (laughs) it's a dark territory but this is getting he argues in that part of what he argues in that book is that like an idealized utopian society in the way that we often conceive of it is not possible because the only way that most humans attain happiness is through competition Mm -hmm. and if you have a civilization that precludes competition and does away with the aspects of of Competitive loss that we live with as humans now, then that would not be a utopia because no one would be happy because no one is winning. Mm-hmm. And so, if your sense of purpose and I guess longevity or legacy is based on your, I'm going to call it for the sake of argument, a competitive need to do things right while you're here so that you remember it as having done things right, then that is the way that you achieve personal utopia and personal comfort and happiness and contentment because you're competing to be remembered the right way.
2: So existentialism, can you hit me with that one again? I want to hear it again.
1: The philosophical theory or approach which emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent determining their own development through acts of the will.
2: Yeah, so that one's interesting to me because that one's the one that's like team free will, basically. Like all the other ones are like there's a fate or there's no point, but this is there's meaning due to the fact mm-hmm. that you make your own choices. Yeah, that's interesting to me because I do believe in free will, but I don't necessarily believe that there's meaning behind it.
0: See, I'm I'm still trying to sift through what actually qualifies as meaning and what doesn't, but I think that the one thing that is true of every single person is that no one knows why we're here or how we exactly how we got here you know so so the the one constant throughout all of humanity is mystery and the one thing that every person is i'm gonna say tasked with doing or at least given the choice of whether or not they care about that mystery how badly they want to solve it and how badly they want their answer to that mystery to be the one answer or the only acceptable answer and so you get a lot of conflicting ideologies and everything but like that's how people create meaning that's how people give reverence to anything like i have to be here for a reason or i have to pick a reason or a purpose to serve while here since i'm going to be here anyway i might as well feel fulfilled or rewarded or like I'm contributing something to an otherwise meaningless world. So it really is only once a mass number of people start to choose their own meaning or define their own purpose that life begins to have meaning. But then you get sometimes a confluence of meaning or sometimes a dissonance of meaning and people start disagreeing with each other. And Some people give their lives meaning by disagreeing. But Mm. I think that that's really is the one constant is that there is at all times a mystery that you can choose to solve or not or choose to believe you've solved or not
2: so where does like religious or like cult like beliefs play into this like people who are not always given that choice like you are born into a religion Mm -hmm. and that is what you believe like you're not taught that you have a choice even or that that it's a mystery there's no mystery god created this there's no mystery such and such happened
0: if it's cult, actually cult-like, like the village type thing where you've never been exposed to a society other than your own and you're really, really, really sheltered.
2: Which there are many. I mean, we live in a world yeah. country, but there's so many mm-hmm. humans that are like that.
0: Yeah. Then you might not be as disposed to believing that it's a mystery at all and you might think of it as fact. In the Christian world that I grew up in, it was easy to see that there was a veil of mystery.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's what defines faith. That's so fair. So if you are growing up religiously, it should be pretty transparent that faith is a part of mystery or mystery is a part of faith. But yeah, I think you would have to be very, very sheltered or very, very indoctrinated <laughs> to uh, not see that there is any mystery at all. But I don't know the answer to that. Like, how how would that person make their meaning?
1: Well, it's also, I think it's it's worth saying that, like, the free will or, you know, even the existentialist perspective, like, personally, it's my favorite. It's always wrapped these together the most organically for me, but I don't necessarily think that it has to be the most virtuous either. Mm-hmm. Because if you're in that cult-like environment and somebody else has prepackaged your meaning for you and dropped it on your lap as a kid, and that's what you're going to pretty much wear for the rest of your life like it doesn't make you bad you know you got you didn't have any choice in it but it's like you know like in some ways i didn't have any choice in gravitating towards stuff like existentialism my life would be a hell of a lot more comfortable if i was able to buy into fucking anything yeah Yeah. but i've never been able to sit down in that way and just kind of be at peace and i don't necessarily think that that's a virtue i've tried to make it into in the most (laughs) existentialist way possible i've tried to make it into something interesting but that's not coming from a place of joy. That's coming from a place of like trying to stay one step ahead of the agony.
0: Desperation,
1: yeah. Which is not necessarily bad either. So I think that's one thing that kind of occurred to me is that the whole notion that life is meaningless isn't necessarily, or that, I guess that life has no meaning, isn't necessarily wrong definitively. But it's such a heterogeneous series of meanings. <laughs> There is no unified meaning necessarily because that's just almost indisputable at this point. Like, yeah, we can't agree on one. <laughs> and we've had no proof of one. Like in the sense that like there is literally one besides maybe just not dying. But even that gets that gets tricky at times. So I think uh-huh. it's one of those things where like life itself may not be imbued with some intrinsic meaning. meaning but there's enough of a gap between you and that mystery that... You can create one, you can make up a thousand, you can take what's there, but the problem is that doesn't lend itself to a coherent philosophical doctrine or even a train of thought. That's just kind of the state of things and also not the state of things at the same time, which is useless. So it's like, that's part of why I find all this stuff so fun and so exciting is that, like, it's sort of simultaneously right and wrong in a lot of cases. Some of these entire tracks and entire schools of thought are by the same token holding patterns and destinations depending on when they strike you nothing is virtuous unless it's virtuous for you it's just, i don't know it's it's crazy to me but
2: yeah and there is definitely something comforting about it of like the understanding that you're going into something knowing that you won't have a solution and therefore you don't have to strive for a solution which is why i end up here all the time too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also i'm really interested too like if in a year from now Some of us listen back to this, like I'm sure none of us will have the exact same stance that we do right now because of that flu editing.
1: Well, that's also where I think sometimes things like, again, like a little bit back to like the idea of there being kind of like a superhuman good or evil, like something that sort of exists independent, like, you know, like the platonic heaven thing, like there's like this perfect form of good or evil, like that kind of thing. I think that's like where some of this gets called into question again, where like, pretty much across the board, we can say we, we have a deep-rooted fear of ambiguity as a species. Like, it's ambiguity serves us in no way, shape, or form from a survivalistic standpoint, from a just general comfort standpoint. Like, kind of no matter where you are in sort of the social hierarchy, ambiguity is not good. So yeah. we've constructed entire ideologies and, and forms of reasoning to combat and minimize that. And so there's so there's so many, like, different doctrines and perspectives that I've encountered there's so many philosophical ones and there's just so many even aspects of stuff like the scientific method that I've seen is like these, these aren't freestanding either these are just an effort to push off the idea that we don't know anything and that we're
0: making shit up as we go
2: Yeah, <laughs> because
0: that's horrible and it does nothing for us Am- ambiguity is actually comforting to me really? for a really complex set of reasons I'm sure But one of those reasons is because I've, I'm so turned off by ideology. Mm. So if something sounds true, but I can assign my own meaning to why it's true, that's comforting to me Mm. always. So like the lack of objective truth or the lack of an objective reason why something bears truth always gives me the freedom to ponder why it's true or apply metaphor to it and make it more true through that because there's another example of truth that lies within metaphor, you know, and that's why existentialism is comforting to me, (laughs) at least for the time being it is because so much seems true or so much seems debatable or ambiguous that when you can examine it through your own meaning making lens, it adds to the validation that you seek that your meaning is, is helpful because it gives you that sort of exercise And I'm so likely to reject any sort of ideological reason why something is true or false that seeing ambiguity in something there's it's like it's like literature it's like what you learn as an English major. It's like I think personally that authorial intent is at least somewhat important and has its place in literary study and some people would disagree but I think like that is important but once you remove it and give yourself the permission to sort of say, like, I don't care what the author meant. There is subtext here, which changes based on the era in which you're studying something, which changes based on newfound human thought patterns and discoveries and and whatever. So, like, text is always evolving in that way, in that the person perceiving the text has evolved. But in perceiving text, there is always another meaning to be found that has not yet been found. Mm. and always another lens to study it through that has, that it has not been studied through. So maybe it's just because I have a, a past that involves a lot of that, but that's how I tend to approach meaning making is that like everything is here. Everything is established. Don't know why, don't know why it was put here. Mm. Can't read the authorial intent of intent of the universe, but I can study it through th- certain lenses And I can see it as just ambiguous enough so that everyone can engage in their own meaning-making practices if that brings them comfort, and I can engage in mine. And we may have ideological differences, but as long as we acknowledge that in a peaceful way, then we're okay. Yeah,
1: and I wonder if that... Because I like existentialism for some of those same reasons, but I wonder if that's true ambiguity or if that's just it being multifaceted and, you know, you just, you realize you have the free will to discover and play around with and enjoy each of those different lenses. And you don't know how many lenses there are, but it's sort of ambiguous on the macro scale, like on the big cosmic universal scale, but it's extremely clear on the micro scale. Cause you know, when you're looking through those lenses, you have your own intellect, you have your own experiences, you have the ability to engage unambiguously but then you can switch the lens and it's all new again. So it's mm-hmm. like you don't know where this slideshow is necessarily progressing to, but you can see each slide. And to me, like, the ambiguity that I think we're, like, hardwired to reject is, like, if each of those slides were also blurry. So you don't even know if you're in a freaking theater anymore. I don't know if anything past that point of ambiguity. Like, anything where you start wandering into the, like, you doubt your own faculties, you doubt your God, you doubt your species. Like, I think that's what a lot of philosophies and religions and social instincts and things are, are here to sort of buffer us against because that's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. that does nothing that's like just pain but i feel the same way about stuff like existentialism and it's, it's partially why I, I tend to reject things that are more just into the predestination at least my own tastes you know i tend to reject those things because it's no fun
2: i did too for the longest time but i've never felt such existential comfort or calm is when I realized that I no longer believed that everything was just gonna turn out okay. And that I accepted Mm. that. Yeah. Mm. It was the weirdest thing. It was a bliss for like a week. I was just like, everything's fine because everything isn't fine and that's fine. (laughs) My therapist was really worried, but I was like, no, this is a good thing. I'm going to be so bitter for the rest of my existence about how much we failed as a society uh, as far as environmentalism goes because people sure. can still have been healthy and we- happy, healthy, and wealthy mm-hmm. while just finding other ways to achieve the success that we already have.
0: Yeah. Like I'll say this. As...
2: more environmental friendly. thing Sorry. Go on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> as, as I was going to say just real quick, as much peace as I often find in the liberation to make your own meaning. Mm-hmm. What does send me down an existential spiral is fucking styrofoam
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> and islands of plastic in the ocean. Yeah. Dunkin' Donuts cups all over the sidewalks. Yeah. Can I just say this real quick? It pisses me off. <laughs> the coffee cups that you're most likely to see littered on the side of the road are made of styrofoam. Mm-hmm. And shouldn't you take stock of that as a company? And be like, oh, it's mostly our cups because we're where the bad people shop. <laughs> and if they're going to be throwing it on the side of the road, let's make our coffee cups out of something that biodegrades, like paper goods, which I still wouldn't like to see littered on the side of the road, but would still biodegrade, so which Styrofoam sure does not.
2: If you're taking a swing at Dunkin' right now, I, I am. They have started <laughs> doing that. Oh, good. They're okay. all paper cups now.
0: All right, Cumberland Farms is next. You're on my list too.
2: Okay, as long as we get off of Duncan because I am hardcore Massachusetts in that regard. (laughs) Um.
0: (laughs) Well, but it's a similar feeling to like, um, like Alton Brown was on that Hot Ones show on YouTube.
2: Oh, was Mm. he? I love
0: him. Yeah, he was talking about how he does his grocery shopping late at night, like goes to 24-hour grocery stores, only shops late at night because if he goes when everyone else is going, he'll see what they're buying. (laughs) Yeah. And he'll just go into crisis and, and abandon a full cart of groceries, just leave the store because he gets depressed. i <laughs> like, I identify with that, and I see how much styrofoam people are using, and I identify with, like, that sort of angst <laughs> that comes from that. But it's like, one, is kind of seeing how people treat their own bodies and also kind of being wasteful in the process because you buy so many prepackaged foods. Like, you could be making all of this from scratch and not being as wasteful and not going through as much packaging. And also you see people not just with the way that they treat themselves or not just with how they feed themselves, but with just how much product they go through and the byproducts of their consumption are destructive just inherently. Like if everybody is living like that, that's so much destruction.
2: Yeah, Society didn't have to go that way. There were other routes we could have taken. We didn't take them. And now we're here.
0: Well, that's
1: tricky to me sometimes, too. I, I agree, like, in a zoomed-out way, I agree, but I also sometimes think that it's it's easy to look at some of these issues as, like, as decision points. And notwithstanding stuff, like, I think now, say, like, the like fossil fuels debate or the idea that nations should be banding together to figure out the freaking ozone layer, like, those are not the same thing to me. Like, those are actual decision points that are published in newspapers and, like, exist in very clear terms, but some of the whole idea, like where these types of issues connect back to philosophy, where they connect back to like the moral state of humanity. I think a lot of times, like on the human, like personal level, most people are just trying to live a comfortable existence or just live kind of day to day or do what their neighbors are doing or like try out the new gadget that's been invented in their, their lifetime. Like I think there are a lot of very innocent I don't want to say mistakes. They're just very innocent choices that culminate in another cell that the virus is able to kill.
2: Yeah. But it's even just like the Keurig makes the most convenient cup of coffee, but it's constantly just plastic pods that you don't need. Yeah. Inside or. Um, I mean, I'll constantly talk about um, how if we, as a society had instead of making a bunch of cars had made up and roads had made better public transport, we'd have significantly less emissions pollution yeah. just all decisions that we made, whether out of greed or convenience, that fucked us in the long run.
1: But that's where it's like, sometimes I struggle to to characterize humanity as evil because the intentionality isn't there. But I would characterize us as kind of a net drain on the planet, like kind of a malignancy. Like a tumor? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like we're just, as an entire species, it seems like we're no more sentient or... I don't know, intentionally destructive than a cancer, like or than an actual virus. Like they're they're non living. They just wreak havoc for no discernible reason yet. Like it's not even a bacteria is alive. Viruses are just
0: going around.
2: Do you think like deep cells have like existential crises?
0: <laughs> Mine do <laughs> Can you imagine If we stopped using trees for paper goods, but kept dying at the same rate, how many more trees there would be and how much more better fertilized they would be?
2: Yeah, well, that is actually something I... I, I'm not perfect. I'll never say I'm perfect. Also, we live in a society where it's impossibly perfect. I have cut all of my paper products and now bamboo and stuff like that because it's just...
0: Oh, good. We're wiping
2: our asses with trees now. Like, what? How is that a decision we made? Yeah, no, we just, as a human, like, we could stop using paper products almost completely and we just don't because it's what we were taught and it's what we do and it's what we know but yeah we just have all of like the perfect plant that takes care of most of our basic human needs and we're just cutting it up to wipe our asses with it
0: (laughs) but now this introduces another problem with like how we choose to be moral and how we choose the path forward for our society which is that (laughs) Those of us who are more environmentally conscious, like nowadays, there are algorithms that pick up on that. Like if we then yep. click on a an ad for Grove via Instagram, what we're going to get, and what I get all the time, is a bunch of you know reusable products advertised to me. So now there is a market for mm-hmm. being environmentally conscious, and now there is a way for people to profit off of your being environmentally conscious, and many companies market that to you profit off of you and are not environmentally conscious companies (laughs) themselves so the problem is then can we change those people's minds and probably not like the people who start those companies and effectively market to us and effectively promote via algorithms that reach us very successfully Mm -hmm. what do we do in a world where like that kind of is predetermination that kind of is like we don't have nearly as much control as we used to over what ends up in front of our eyes And what ends up looking like a good solution to us, just with the way that our lives are now and the screens that we look at so often, what ends up in front of us is not necessarily of our own choosing. So it gives us more of those sort of moral choices to make and more of that vetting to do Mm -hmm. and meaning making to do when we're advertised the solutions to our existential crises on a daily basis
2: yeah and i think like the monetization of altruism is just Mm -hmm. like the final nail in the coffin for why we're doomed as a species but (laughs) yeah like oh, look at all these solutions how can we do as little of them as possible make it look like we're doing as much as possible and benefit from
1: it see i don't know if i agree that that's different than how we've been in the past just as a species like I think it's just hip. Define the past. Like the whole, t- the whole the time. The whole time. Okay, yeah. go on. <laughs> no, it's just, I think it's really hip to be altruistic right now. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, it's yeah. just kind of the cool thing to do. And I just, I wonder sometimes if that's that different than being alive during maybe the Renaissance or something and, and having those values or, you know, just various junctures throughout human history. Like it's, I, I think zeitgeists have always determined all aspects of consumerism and all aspects of commerce and even morality. I mean, so many look at like the imperialistic eras, like there's so many things that were fully justified that were just friggin' monstrosities from any other vantage point. But in that era, they were justified as like the whole, um, the way the Congo was colonized. Like
2: mm-hmm.
1: that was to 99.9% of the world, a humanitarian effort. Yep. It wasn't. Mm-mm. And I mean, w- that obviously was a deception, but like a lot of those cases, it was seen as civilizing natives. That was fully justified by the morality of the times. Now we look at it and say, good God, that's not what that was. But it's not like we're evolving. We're kind of evolving circularly, you know? It's not yeah. a linear thing. And even the idea that we have less free will now, it would say like in our consumerism, like you brought up, Joel. Um, Yeah, we have a lot more options and we're being funneled towards the few. But, you know, it's almost like in the, uh, you know, like say the Victorian era or like the 1800s or something when you have like, there's one type of soap you can get. You go to the general store that's in your walking distance vicinity and you get that type of soap, that soap for you. Now there's a billion different types of soap you can use, but there's just more high tech ways of delivering a type of soap they're pretty sure you're going to like based on your search habits it's not necessarily that you're relinquishing free will. You could open an incognito window. You could use a friend's laptop. You could just turn off your phone and, and spend a day wandering around different stores and encounter a billion different kinds of soaps. So it's sort of similar to like how back then you could theoretically get into a wagon and go across the country and find that crazy bar they're using in San Francisco now. And it's like, it's just the the logistics have changed. But I, I think a lot of this stuff happens proportionally. Rather than, like, I don't think that we're necessarily more fucked in the sense that the balance is different. I think Mm -hmm. we've just advanced another level the way, you know, we just do when generations die and new generations start up.
2: Yeah, but I think the scary part is the fact that we've advanced to having to have it be cool and trendy to do good things because we are so fucked.
1: But that's where I would argue it's because we've gotten so good at industrialization and we've gotten Mm -hmm. so good at mass connection and like just making things happen on such a large undeniable scale that maybe some of this making these things hip is just a response to the fact that this is going out of control. It's like the plane is crashing. So, you know, we sent out the the flight attendants to just start serving drinks. Like everything's okay in this cabin. We don't need to think about the fact that like our stomachs feel like they're in our throats all of a sudden. So Mm. it's not so much that we've gotten worse. It's just that we've had to tweak our algorithm a little bit as a species to maintain which isn't right but I some, that's where sometimes I don't think that we're we're scum I think we're just doing the same shit our forebears did
2: yeah well again I, I say this on a grand scale that humanity's doomed I don't think that the individuals are scum or even the majority are scum and mm-hmm. we're all making do with what we have and what we're given but there's just so many <laughs> things in our evolution and our trends towards whatever is coming next that are just they're terrifying to look at when you step back
1: yeah they are <laughs> it's scary, it is scary. Like...
2: Yeah. and i think yeah so what got me into being more terrified and then more t- it, the terror came and then the justification of okay this is just we're fucked and the uh, weird bliss that i came from getting that was the environment and then politics of today i mean i was really struggling with the new laws that were being passed in texas a couple months ago and also the fact that our environment and our worlds and our Existence is just circling the drain. And so I had to come to the conclusion that I will do as much as I can on a personal level, but we're fucked and I can't keep fighting that.
1: Would you guys feel differently if we were like the second place malignancy? Like, if you know how they say like the octopus is potentially far more developed than humans in some ways like the octopus might have an intellect that we we can't even comprehend or might have senses that we can't even comprehend. Like say the octopus was leading the world in doom and destruction. Like that was the thing that was driving this shit. But we're the same. Like we're humans are still capable of this, you know, we're doing the same things to the world and if we were in first place, we'd be the tip of the spear in terms of fucking up everything for everyone, but we just weren't the villain.
2: I think I'd be angrier. Yeah. Yeah, like, if I was a dog, but I knew what was going on, I'd be fucking pissed. I'd be like, you asshole. Like, mm-hmm. First off, why on earth did you domesticate me? But also, <laughs> stop disturbing the planet and give me a belly rub. <laughs> um,
0: to respond a little bit, and this is going to open up a can of worms that I don't necessarily want to totally dive into, Grant. but to respond <laughs> at least a little bit to what you were saying about altruism kind of being hip i think currently we have a prevailing ideology of morality Mm -hmm. you know a certain kind of morality that has been little acknowledged in the past but that is approached ideologically where it creates a lot of us versus them sort of narratives and that's always been the case in human civilizations there's always been us versus them so whenever there is a moral ideology or a moral superiority that can be acknowledged, there is going to be a them that is not acknowledging it to the fullest extent that they could. Mm. So if both species were the same degree of, like, say they were both, like, hominid species, right? I don't have the scientific language for this, but both, like, at similar states of what we would consider human evolution and were equally as capable of judging the other based on the human decisions that they could have made but didn't, then it would become about like, if we're, if we're in second place, we've still done a lot of destruction. Mm-hmm. So there's probably not going to be that big of a, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if yeah. we're evolved enough in human consciousness to be judging that other species for having destroyed the planet to that degree, then we're evolved enough to recognize our own destruction.
2: So what have we thought about it, too, not as different species, but as we live in a first world country where pollution is just Mm -hmm. horrible, we're causing all most of it. Mm -hmm. But people who live in less developed countries must be like, are you joking? There's a hole in the ozone because of electricity I don't even get in my house. That must be insane. I couldn't imagine I would be, I mean, for so many reasons, furious just all of the time, Mm. knowing that my planet was being destroyed and I wasn't reaping any of the benefits.
1: And I guess that's just kind of what I'm getting at is like, does that, would that change the morality of like, or just your your ways of conceiving of morality if you didn't have that sense of even utopian agency? Like that sense that like our species, given that we're the ones that are the most aggressively fucking things up, it it's natural to look for that inverse effect of like, well, we could also be not fucking things up. Mm-hmm. So even if that's a complete utopian just, figment of our collective imaginations like if there was no conceivable way we could do that and still be a part of nature but you could at least abstractly say that that's there Mm -hmm. if if that agency weren't there what would our morality look like that's kind of what i meant by like second place like not so much that our capacity to destroy was different or that anything else's capacity was better but more just like if we weren't the ones in the driver's seat but we were still going over this cliff Okay. would our moral sense and our moral structure change accordingly? And if it did, then I think that would disqualify any innate sense that there was good and there was evil and that any of these things are freestanding.
2: I guess I'd argue is that the vast majority of humanity aren't the ones in the driver's seat, ourselves included. And that does kind of make me like, because I know that nothing really on a great scale that I do will fix this. I feel less inclined to do everything right in some ways. Like, I still have prepackaged food because that's what's sold to me. And my prepackaged food, in comparison to the large amount of waste being dumped in the ocean, small potatoes.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you vote? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: I don't believe that it does a damn thing, especially because we're in Massachusetts and I'm left. It yeah. is this, but yeah, I vote. I know I'm kind of super pessimistic. I'm really not. It's the point that I'm trying to get is like I am hopeful on a smaller scale, but just not yeah. on a grand scale.
0: No, that just occurred to me because I was I was thinking about, you know, being that second place. Like, it's a lot like blaming politicians. Yes. For all the wrongs. But we also like I was watching this video that the New York Times put out a few months ago about how the most Democratic states vote the least democratically. Or not yeah. democratic, but like vote the least liberally. Mm-hmm. Huh. So, like, places where housing is desperately needed and the homeless population is, like, up, 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 up. No one votes for, like, multifamily homes to be constructed in their neighborhoods, you know? Yeah. Like, it's a huge problem. But, like, we blame who is in power rather than ourselves, which is not what we should be doing in a democracy, like, having that accountability as voters matters just as much as who's in power
1: well that takes us back to the hip altruism too i mean it's yeah. like everyone likes yeah. to to walk out of there with their fucking sticker saying that like yeah i voted for you know I'm, I'm pretty advanced on the whole housing issue i'm pretty progressive but it's like i don't want to live next to that yucky multi-story <laughs> building <laughs> good god are you insane yeah. like no, that's, so. that's
0: exactly what this video is about
2: yeah
1: but having this discussion that we've just had I, i'd be curious if anyone's ever, um, researched that in eras past, you know, like if that has always been the case where mm-hmm. there's been a disconnect like that, or is it since that sort of altruism and maybe it even has always been hip and we're just sort of seeing a different expression of it, but throughout different eras and different cultural waves, like when maybe different things were prioritized morally or different things were seen to be, you know, putting you on the upper crust. hmm or believing in the right things or whatever, talking the right talks, was there still that disconnect? Because I actually was thinking a lot about this. um, There was a a bit of a crisis in my town recently where uh, (laughs) they wanted to put in a rehab center. That was a crisis? Oh, yeah. The police were called to the town meeting.
2: The police were called?
1: Yeah, I've been irate about this for weeks. Oh, oh my God. there's like kind of a it's a development that used to be a series of doctor's offices and um it's mm-hmm. it's not like secluded but i mean it's it's in a busy part of town like it's sort of it's it's not inconceivable to put a place like this in there it's a very reasonable place for it i mean not that any place isn't but like it's a logical. it used to be a medical complex now it's going to be a rehab or it isn't but it was going to be a rehab complex people went ballistic at the town meeting and um some of the rationale was like we don't want like junkies running around in our backyards and they're going to be climbing up it was like just astounding like i was just stupefied sitting there reading it like just disgusted on every level but that was like you know a couple weeks after they've been bitching in that same paper about the opioid crisis and the epidemic and what are we going to do our youths are hooked on these poisons and like
2: i don't know maybe put them in a rehab facility.
1: I know, but it's the same issue. It's like, (laughs) well, do you want to live next to it and see the progress? And all of a sudden people are like, well, no, I don't don't want it to be near me. I just need it to conceptually exist so that I can say I did the right thing while my fucking kid dies. Like it's – that disconnect is fascinating to me.
0: Well, we also like we want the sense that those more like troubled youth problems or like poverty problems or addiction problems or whatever are happening where we are not. Yeah, you know, especially if you're kind of like in a middle-class suburb, you want to believe that like that's an inner city problem. That's not – that's why I live here so that I don't have that problem, so that I'm not near that problem. And we want but, the solutions to be like, you know, sneeches esque Like you,
1: you yeah. send your troubled youth through some Professor McMonkey McBean machine type shit and they come out the other side – Healed and fine, and it was all an unpleasant memory that
0: we quickly forget. And I have no idea what reference you just made. <laughs> Sneeches, dude. It's
2: like the no. most. Oh my god.
0: It's a great. Honestly, it's a really. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's the most like woke children's book in the world, and it was made in like I don't even know when was Dr. Seuss's like original stuff coming out.
0: Oh, oh it was Dr. Geez. Seuss. Yeah. Dr. Seuss, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, the okay. star bellied Sneeches. It's a great book. Like, it's just pretty cool that it was a children's book, but because it's a very like pretty deep and. Potentially abrasive concept for yeah, okay, no, kids it to get,
2: but should I explain the Sneeches to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> yeah, sure. so
2: basically, Sneeches are creatures, human-esque creatures. Half of their population is born with stars on their belly, and half of them are not. And the stars on okay. the belly Sneeches, I believe, are the ones that treated the ones without the stars like shit. So the starless Sneeches build a machine, and then when they walk through it, they come out with stars on their belly. But then the Sneeches. With stars in the bellies, we're like, well, what the shit? Like, we're not special anymore. So they walked through the machine to remove their stars and were like, oh, you guys suck. You have stars on your bellies.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, but also Professor McMonkey McBean was the dude. I can't believe I said that name out loud. Why do you forget that name? But he he blew into town when in this whole middle of this thing and had the machine. Like, he said, hey, I got this thing. You guys walk through and it'll take the star off, put the star on, whatever. And made a crazy profit off of both teams and then blew town.
2: I don't remember that at all. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, the Sneetches all sat around depressed, realizing, like, all of them had been played. And this dude is gone. Wow. Yeah, it's a deep book. It's cool.
0: This is a topic that is impossible to exhaust.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: But do you think we've gotten there?
2: I have no idea. I don't even know what our goal was. So,
0: Okay.
2: I think we definitely covered existentialism Yeah. Mm-hmm. as far as we could. We mm-hmm. haven't talked really about any of the other ones, but that's fine.
1: Well, I guess just real quick then, have, any, have your opinions on any of them changed? Because the other ones can group together, I think, in the context that we've discussed this. Existentialism is the only one that sort of definitively counters these other ones. The other ones mm-hmm. can sort of be woven. Like, I think they oppose each other in the sense that like they become separate tracks for reasons that are clear when you kind of look into them. But like there's a clear divide between things like misanthropy, fatalism, nihilism and existentialism in that like only one of those really gives you agency and encourages you to use it. Mm -hmm. So given that we sort of explored that side, has your, either of your feelings about like things like nihilism, fatalism, misanthropy changed
2: I guess I'm just constantly wondering about am I an actual misanthrope? <laughs> like did that happen, and I just didn't know it, and I accepted it? I don't know
0: well, I okay, I have a question for you. Come on. Do you feel like a lot of your philosophical beliefs or idealistic mm-hmm. beliefs are based on fear?
2: One hundred percent, yeah,
0: well, because I find that a lot of my ideals are based around not wanting to be afraid. That's fair. Or not wanting to validate fear. That's a good point.
2: And I think mine are on validating my fear of like, okay, these things are going badly. Accept them. Navigate around them if you can. But if not, yeah. look them.
0: But I think that's what keeps me from going full misanthropist mm-hmm. sometimes. And like, I've definitely been accused of by people of being a misanthropist. <laughs> um, the example I always go back to is this... Um, So a few years ago, I was at a cookout with my family Mm -hmm. and my uncle and brother-in-law were talking about guns. Mm. And I came to this conclusion that like, if I were to own a gun and the reason were protection, it would mean that there was a small, at least a small part of me that is constantly in fear that I will need to protect myself Mm -hmm. by using a gun. There's no other reason to own a gun than the belief, which I have to assume is a constant belief, that you will need to use it. Mm -hmm. and the counter belief to that again like people are violent people act out of desperation people will rob other people for whatever various reasons but i find that not acknowledging that that is a fear or by countering that concern with but most people are good
2: Mm -hmm.
0: brings me a lot of comfort yeah And you can look at a lot of evidence that that's not true, that most people are not good. You can look at, you know, crime rates doing various things at various times. But that ideal of mine was actually validated by, um, there was this study done that showed that people who believed in a loving and compassionate God were more compassionate, more likely to take care of each other, less likely to act out of selfishness and individual concern, and more likely to act in harmony with each other than they were if they believed in a wrathful and vengeful God, an angry God. So there's something psychologically to the sense that we get when we believe that others have the capacity for good, and we see that in them. And we don't see anybody as innately good or innately evil. Once again, that those are elements that exist in the world that people may avail themselves of, but that no one is innately either one, but that everyone has the capacity to act with either in mind. And I think that believing that makes me live with less fear.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And based on that study, living with more fear causes less interpersonal harmony and less societal good than it does to live with more optimism or more belief in the good of others.
1: That's interesting. Like That study reminds me of... Did we talk about... Uh, I don't remember if Azim Sharif did these studies or if he just summarized them, but the studies where they kind of were able to correlate wrathful, and vengeful gods versus loving and benevolent gods with collectivistic and individual individualistic societies. Oh, we've never talked about this. This is fascinating. Okay. Well there is this guy, Azim Sharif, who he's the the researcher that I heard about it from. I just can't remember if he conducted this research himself, but there's been research that's found that loving and benevolent gods are found to be most successful on a societal level in societies that are collectivistic, whereas individualistic and usually kind of imperialistic societies gravitate towards wrathful gods. And they've found that a lot of times this can be accounted for by the fact that your social network gets larger when your goal is expansion and your society is kind of organized in that top-down way. So you can't rely on kind of like interpersonal connections to hold your society together because you can't possibly have that many interpersonal connections. You know, you might be spanning continents. So if you think about the idea that like maybe Europeans gravitated towards certain harsher uh, incarnations of Christianity where there's a wrathful God, that applies very well when you need to have that same set of social principles apply in the Americas and apply in the Indies and apply in Asia where, you know, it's different than say like they, they cited like certain Native American tribes or sets of tribes where you kind of just had to have harmony. Like you didn't, you weren't concerned with taking over the whole continent or taking over the world. So that makes me wonder like how objective any of these philosophies can be in the sense that, and even some religions to some extent, and at least in the social side of it, like how objective can any of this be if we're looking at this entirely with that with our worldview, our very individualistic worldview, could some of this be a grass is always greener kind of a thing? Like we're looking for that osmosis to kick into gear a little bit. We see our utopia in the societies that we don't see committing the same trespasses that we are. Mm -hmm. And could it be the same on the other side? So basically like if, because I think to my knowledge, all of these philosophies we've discussed originated in the West. Yeah. Like maybe they drew from Eastern philosophies or eastern religions in certain senses but i don't remember encountering anybody who was truly eastern they were all like europeans and americans so i wonder whenever these philosophies talk about humanity the same way when those religions that are decidedly expansionistic or decidedly communal can you talk about humanity do you have the right to talk about humanity with the capital h if it you're only seeing one side of the the venn diagram you know And and through no fault of your own. Like even us having this conversation now, we are only able to draw from our experiences and from our knowledge because even our a priori, it's only ours. We've we've never experienced that other side and it could be entirely different. Humanity might mean something entirely different to someone else, maybe, you know, a a tribal society or something. So could all of these be bullshit if you try to scale them?
2: I mean, almost Mm -hmm. certainly.
1: And I think that's where my issue with... With a lot of it's it's a more glaring issue to me with something like misanthropy, but I, I would even say it can be an issue with something like existentialism, like how you brought up the cult example earlier. I think my issue with any ideology on a general level is the scalability of them, mm-hmm. not the ideology itself. It's that I, I don't think I think every, it's the freaking objective truth thing again. Like I think uh, most things are subjective.
2: Yeah. But I think my thing with mis- the, the, the misanthropy, again, I, I don't think I am because like on a personal like one off level or an, even on a greater level than that, I don't think humans are bad or inherently bad or evil. But for me on the greater scale is where I start to like, think, well maybe like yeah, our purpose is to destroy. So I don't think I'm a misanthropist.
0: Mm.
2: <laughs> but what the hell am I then I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and you also don't have to be anything. That's true. You don't have to <laughs> subscribe to a label.
2: I'm so close to nihilism or fatalism. If I, if there was free will inherent in those, I would be on those lines. But
0: I'm, I'm fascinated by fatalism. Yeah, I wrote a song about it. Yeah, I told
1: Devry actually. I meant to bring that up earlier. I was wondering if you could explain to her that. I also couldn't remember what the fuck book it was. I just remember that I loved it and that you lent it to me mm-hmm. and that you wrote the song about it. But
0: uh, a hero of our time by yeah. Mikhail Lermontov. Yeah. Which is what my song meant to be is loosely based on. Mm -hmm. I kind of based it on like the imagery that's in that that novel.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a great Um,
0: book. It's such a good book. There's a lot of talk about stars aligning and Mm -hmm. sort of planetary shifting and what that might determine for certain people's paths coming together. And the final story in the book is actually where Russian roulette comes from. Mm -hmm. Because it's a man who loads a revolver, spins it, and is kind of preaching fatalism to the rest of the crowd that's inside this, um, this tavern or this public house or whatever wherever yeah. he is, and shoots himself. Gun misfires. And like he's just not meant to die in that moment, but then dies later on.
1: Because <laughs> <So, laughs> it still has to be a Russian novel.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course it does. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorite books of all time. Um, and it's always stuck with me, like, what is said about fatalism? Mm-hmm. In that book is very fascinating in sort of a mystical sense, the way that a lot of things are intellectually fascinating to me in a, in a mystical sense, but I don't necessarily translate them to belief or or spirituality or anything else like i think I think that's what I get out of my my own personal meaning making a lot is just sort of the the ability to intellectualize things and engage in mystery and In sort of a mystical way but not a not i'm not anything that i adhere to spiritually or ideologically but did Mm. i choose for it to be that way no like i don't have it wasn't free will that led me to that choice because it wasn't free will that made me terrified of ideology Mm -hmm. Uh, that was the burden that was like given to me through the circumstances of my life But then there's a certain amount of free will that allows you to stay there and to reframe it. Mm -hmm. Your need to reframe it is not your own free will, but your ability to is. So Matt and Devery, you two have started a business together. We have. Basic Stitch Embroidery.
1: Yeah, it kind of came out of um, when we would tour together. Like we always had this idea in the back of our heads, like we should do something together. Like when we get home, like we should try to, you know, take one of the ideas we came up with on like a night drive or something and, and try to run with it. And one of the first things that sort of came to mind was we're always making our own merch, and like Devry was touring as a fiber artist, and we just you know seeing the way people respond to that at merch tables, it was, it just kind of became like a light bulb in the in about January of this past year of like, we should just go wide with this, you know, make this stuff for other people. So yeah, we've been Mm -hmm. doing
2: that. Yeah, especially with the pandemic, it was a good way of like staying in touch, still working together when we couldn't actively be traveling and touring and stuff like that. So we basically do embroidered merchandise of different types, depending on what people need, custom merch or um, advertisement uh, products or things like that. Yeah,
1: we've been doing uh, different hats and bags. Like we have done a lot of beanies Mm -hmm. so far. That's kind of a big one, but just started offering baseball caps, um, different like tote bags and kind of zippered bags, backpacky, different things. Um, A lot of it depends on if it's a custom order for a client, then we sort of work with them sometimes. And generally things still fall into those same major buckets, but like we can kind of tailor the items to whatever they need to promote or whatever they want to sell. And if it's like a more retail thing, like on our website, then a lot of it's been like beanies and like fanny packs and kind of smaller things like that so far.
2: But yeah, we go off from like one-offs of individual person wants to get a certain phrase or something on their hat or bag versus like a traveling musician or business that wants a bunch at once. So it's a big mass production.
0: Has it been mostly musicians so far?
2: I don't know. I think it's been kind of like a third of each. We've had a third of like um, one-off shoots, um, especially since we do different markets and stuff, a third of musicians. And then different businesses and um, organizations have also been hitting us up a fair bit.
1: Yeah, we actually got to work with um, some medics that were. That was one of our first like kind of major clients. Like right when we started, we got this order from some medics called um, Global Disaster Relief Team. They, right when Ukraine like the conflict and the war started over there, these guys headed right over to the Poland-Ukraine border, and um, we were able to send out some medical patches with them on that first flight. So that was kind of one of our first clients. That I think maybe our first client that wasn't a musician actually. Hmm. um so we were really psyched about that we've been able to kind of keep up a relationship with them and um we're actually selling stuff still for them we're selling puck futon and pray for ukraine patches at all the live events and things we're doing this month and uh giving the money to them so i like yeah of people yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's been a crowd favorite
2: yeah no that one too it's such like an in-between of like there's people who like oh i want the pray for ukraine and there's the people who I want the Puck Footin and they all care about the same cause but they definitely aren't the same type of person.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they have a website too. I think it's gdrt.org. Um yeah. and there's there's some different like news coverage and stuff of what they're doing but I think they have like a shopping mall or something that's right on the border and hmm. it's been converted into kind of a makeshift like battlefield hospital type deal and mm-hmm. so they're like helping with when refugees come over the border they're helping to sort of give them immediate like medical aid and make sure they're fed and make sure they're all cool and they've done I don't really know what an extraction mission is in this case but there's been talk on their Instagram of like they were extracting people that were in kind of a risky situation so they're badass they're really they've been a pleasure to work with and they've they're just doing god's work over there
2: yeah they're amazing really good to like you said really great to work with and so selfless
1: but they've been flying shifts of, um, they're all volunteers. And they've been flying shifts of like different volunteer medics and nurses. And um, just really, I think anyone with training that might be useful, they've been flying them over kind of group by group. And I think they mm-hmm. do tours, like you know, a few weeks or a couple months or however long they do them.
2: And I think it's almost primarily if you are Ukraine speaking or Polish speaking, mm-hmm. like that, that's like a big thing, like whatever skill you have. Also, if you can speak this language and just help calm or offer comfort to these people who are losing everything.
1: Yeah. So it feels really good to be helping them even just like a minuscule way to just yeah. kind of, you know, seeing that stuff on the news really sucks. So it's like, all right, at
0: least we can give these guys something to put on their jackets if that's all we can do. So <laughs> exactly. it feels nice. Yeah. That's amazing. So where can people find out more about Basic Stitch?
2: Um, so yeah, we have our website, which is basic com, and there you can do different orders. If you want, you can see what we offer. We can do custom orders, but we also have an Instagram, which is also basic stitch and Facebook, which is basic stitch.
1: Oh, we should mention too, actually, before we um, kill it, we're doing subscriptions this summer. We're going to be launching a subscription service sort of. It's similar to Patreon, but it's our like patch a month club. So because we also, oh. we sell these patches. A lot of times we can sell them unattached as well. Um, so we're going to be sending for just three ninety nine a month, and it's you can cancel anytime. We'll be sending people patches and like you know little kind of promotional paraphernalia or like little newsletter kinds of things, like just kind of a fun little like gift envelope. Um, We'd send you one of those every month, and there will be surprises. Might be a birthday component to it. So it's it's going to be fun, but we're going to be launching that next month.
0: Maybe there will even be a black market therapy patch in there one of these days. Uh It's entirely possible. (laughs) (laughs) And that's season two. And as you can imagine, this conversation gave us a lot of ideas for other threads to pull on. So we'll take a break from posting full episodes this summer, although we will be posting previews and scatterbrain sessions and things like that. And then in the fall, we'll start season three by talking about meaning making. And we'll ask our panel of guests how they use different frameworks and lenses to find reasons to live, to contextualize their human experience, and to bring order to chaos. We hope you all have a great summer, and that you join us to talk about meaning-making in Season 3. Until then.